Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Bill Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 162 of Reclaiming the Faith. This is part five of our five-part series on Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. Thank you all for hanging out with us. We are going to close out this series this week, and then we will move on to the letter of First Thessalonians. Guys, I want to give you all a quick update. My new book, The Final Abominable Temple, is available to be purchased. So go check that out. You can get it in paperback form, hardback, uh, audio book. You can get it as a Kindle. Go check that out. Get it anywhere uh, books are available, really. And please, if you wouldn't mind, leave a positive rating and review. That would really help me out. Also, I just did an interview for this book on the Jim Duke perspective with Jim Duke. So go over to his podcast, check out that interview, and check out all the amazing episodes he has done as well. Yeah, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can find all of our content on uh, OmegaFrequency.com or our Omega Frequency podcast channel, Omega Frequency YouTube channels, Rumble channels, all of that stuff. So yeah, thank you all so much for your prayers and support with that. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 162. All right. Well, this is part five, our final part on Polycarp. Yep. Stephanie, <laughs> thank you so much for always being a host with me. Now, this is this is great. Yeah, it's been great for me too. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm sad to be leaving Polycarp. Yeah. But I'm really happy to be getting into what we have next, which is First Thessalonians. Yeah, I'm excited too. Yeah. It'll be nice to go back to studying a book of the Bible. Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's go ahead and dive into this. Um, when we left off last time, we were looking at chapter 11 of Polycarp's work. And he was talking about a man named Valens and Valens's wife. These were, uh, this was like an elder uh, at the church of Philippi and his wife and how they had fallen into uh, significant sin and were in experiencing church discipline. And so Polycarp was giving them uh, advice, giving the church advice on how to handle this and the situation since these people had basically been kicked out of the church for a while. And uh, kind of like Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter Two, I believe, uh, encouraging the church at Corinth to try to bring back uh, a person who had been kicked out of the church um, to help him repent, to help him uh, experience restoration. Polycarp is telling the church to truly pray uh, for Valens's restoration and to pray for true repentance in, in Valens. So we're kind of continuing on that in that line of thought, because most likely uh, there's a lot of church hurt based on this, maybe hurt toward Valens, maybe hurt toward the leaders who put this man in a position of authority. I don't know, but there's hurt going on. And so Polycarp continues 
to give advice to the church on how to handle uh, their own um, spiritual condition based on this uh, really unfortunate situation going on in the body at Philippi. So, uh, Stephanie, would you mind reading chapter 12? All right. I have no doubt that you are well-versed in Holy Scripture and that it holds no secrets for you, which is more than has been granted to me. Only it says there, do not be angry to the point of sin. Do not let the sun go down on your indignation. The happy man is he who keeps this in his mind. And I am sure that that is true of you. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and eternal high priest Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, help you to grow in faith and truth, in unfailing gentleness and avoidance of all anger, in patience and forbearance, and in calmness and purity. To you and to ourselves as well, and to all those under heaven who shall one day come to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and in his Father who raised him from the dead, May he grant part and portion among his saints. Pray for all God's people. Pray too for our sovereign lords and for all governors and rulers, for any who ill use you or dislike you, and for the enemies of the cross. Thus, the fruits of your faith will be plain for all to see, and you will be perfected in him. All right. So again, just like normal, Polycarp is just bleeding scripture. You know, it just flows out of him. And uh, so he's like, yeah, I know you guys know the scriptures. And then he goes into Ephesians chapter four stuff. I know you know the scriptures, but then he basically tells them to put it into practice. So for me, just right off the bat, Polycarp seems to be making a distinction between knowledge and formation. Knowledge of the scriptures and being formed by the scriptures. Uh, can I ask a question? Yeah. So um, the line where he says, it holds no secrets for you, which is more than has been granted to me. So is he saying that they have a better understanding of the scripture than him? It would seem like that, right? Yeah. At first glance. Or is he being like really polite maybe? I think he's being polite and kind of poking at them a little bit. Okay. As if they know how to handle the scriptures better than him. You know nothing, right? Uh, sorry, nothing is hidden from you, right? I mean, like, I mean, things are hidden from me, but you know everything. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I thought that was a, a a a really interesting thing to say and I guess yeah, like you're right. It's he's trying to say you get this, so why are you not doing it? Right. Yeah. It's it's kind of a gentle way to hint at that. Right. And it's something that you see Paul do at, at different times mm -hmm. with churches who are in error but think they're in the right. Mm. Yeah. I had another thought about this too. Like he does quote Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, but he leaves off the part where it talks about giving an opportunity to the devil or a foothold for the devil. Um, I mean, I think that's a pretty important part. And obviously he's like trying to call them to that, but you know, he's showing how, uh, what is it called when they like 
Hint. Hint at something. Yeah, remez. Yeah, so it seems like he's doing that kind of thing because he's talking about the anger and what that's going to do within the church. But he doesn't actually say that line. He's just saying, like, don't let the sun go down on it. You know, don't. Uh, but it's the opportunity or the foothold for the the devil, which, you know, I know you've explained before, but I think it's really cool that it's like giving the devil, like, the keys to your house. And it's mm. giving him the opportunity to really wreck your life. Yeah. Yeah. The give place to the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- that word place is top on, which is often used as a dwelling place. So yeah, it would be like giving the keys of your house mm-hmm. to a thief or a robber. Yeah. You know, not that they own the house, they don't have the title, but they have the opportunity to come in and wreck shop. Yeah. So it's, 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 there's some irony going on because most likely the church is looking at Valens and his wife as they gave the opportunity to the devil, you know, and Polycarp's like, uh, watch out that you're not falling into a similar trap or a trap that could have similar results through their anger. It's kind of like um, the prodigal sons to a degree because there's the one that's the obvious sin and then there's the one that's like the more secret sin. You know, like obviously Valens, whatever, whatever he did, I mean, we can speculate, but it doesn't necessarily say exactly but he did something that was overt and the church disciplined, which is what should happen. But they also can have a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of anger, a lot of, they, they weren't the ones who committed that sin, but it's like, that doesn't mean that your heart is right just because you didn't do, you know, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anger is not usually a sin that gets checked in the church. Mm. It's often unfortunately, one that gets commended by the church as being uh, just anger. Yeah, people like like to say they have righteous anger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, just like Jesus was angry and turned the tables over, so I'm doing the same now. Yeah, and you look at how often Jesus was angry compared to how often he showed compassion. Mm. He was angry. Yeah, it's not not even close. I mean, it, people that use that sort of justification, a lot of times I tend to see them as people who are not necessarily uh, the embodiment of the fruits of the Spirit, like, yeah. or the fruit of the Spirit. Like, they don't have as much joy and peace, patience, gentleness. They're not exuding those things, but they justify it by calling back the story of Jesus turning over the tables. Like, You've got to be really careful when you're trying to say that you're right in doing that. Yeah, ju- righteous anger is not one of the fruit of the Spirit listed or not one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter five. Yeah. Now, one pushback to that would be like, real love will produce righteous anger in appropriate times. And that's true. God is love. Jesus is the embodiment of God's love. Um, and Jesus does get angry. But like you mentioned, uh, not seeing that uh, emotion come out of Jesus uh, coupled with action very often. Like I think in the book of Mark, it's either three or four times that you see the word indignant be applied to Jesus. And um, one is toward evil spirits and like disease. One is toward his disciples because he's not, they're not letting the little children come to him, I believe mm-hmm. is one of the places. And then one is the turning over the tables, right? Um, 
So it's it's not a very common thing. Yeah. Yeah. But um Yeah, so so Polycarp does bring in the idea of the the fruit of the spirit uh at the end. He says, you know, if you're doing this, well these let's let's wait. We'll get back to that in a second. Okay. We'll we'll just come back to that. Let's uh continue with um with the beginning of, or the middle of chapter 12, he says, may the God and father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, himself, the son of God. Really cool uh, example of three titles for Jesus, actually four titles for Jesus here. You have Lord, which uh, Gary Habermas, uh, who's, one of the foremost experts in the resurrection talks about how applying the term Lord to Jesus is actually a stronger uh, descriptive of Jesus's divinity than the term God, which is interesting from a, from a, a Hebraic mindset, really like from a Jewish messianic, a messianic Jewish perspective that they are calling Jesus, not just like God, but you are, Yahweh, Jesus and God, the father are one kind of idea, you know, two persons, but the same God. Yeah. So he's the Lord, the eternal high priest, which is interesting. Like that should be calling back um, uh, pictures for them uh, for, from the gospels of who Jesus is praying for uh, calling back um particularly Hebrews chapter five, I believe it is where it talks about Jesus, the high priest, like with loud cries and wails, interceding for us. And uh, he equates that the writer of Hebrews does with sufferings. He became perfect through sufferings, became this eternal high priest through his sufferings, this anguish, that he is experiencing as he's crying out for the well-being, the spiritual well-being of his people. And it's almost like, are we doing the same thing for Valens? Mm. You know, are you, are you being like him? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then he has the son of God as well. And this word Christ being Messiah. So just as a, an apologetics kind of thing, like, um, you know, the the Mormons, Joseph Smith, and I can't remember if it's in the Pearl of Great Price. I, I think it is. It's I don't think it's in the King Follett discourse. I think it's the Pearl of Great Price where, where Joseph Smith says that uh, all of our doctrines are corrupt. You know, our creeds are corrupt. They're, they're an abomination, all this kind of stuff. All of the Christians' doctrines? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so you go back to writings from people like Polycarp in the early second century, and you see the way that they are labeling Jesus, how, how they are these labels, eternal high priest, Lord, son of God, Christ, they all go back directly to the New Testament. Yeah, they didn't get corrupt, basically. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's go to the second part of chapter 12, where he's like, pray for all God's people. Yeah. Pray too for 
our sovereign lords, for governors, rulers, for any who ill use you, mistreat you, and dislike you. He is uh, there again quoting First Timothy. You've got so much First Timothy coming out of Polycarp, and that's First Timothy two, um, where where Paul writes just like that. But Polycarp adds to it a little bit by saying, not just praying for all God's people, but particularly for those who are mistreating you, and for the enemies of the cross. Now that's an interesting line because that comes out of first, uh, sorry, Philippians chapter three. I think it's like verse 17 or 16, somewhere in there. Um, and it's interesting that Polycarp tells us to pray for them because a lot of times we would feel justified in not praying for them or praying imprecatory prayers yeah. against them. Mm-hmm. But he says to pray for them, Yeah, to pray for them. Um, yeah. What's this up? like progression is, I mean, it's it's a letter. So we have to remember that like it's, these are not, they're numbered for yeah. the sake of clarity, but it wasn't like obviously numbered in the original context, but we're talking about like hurt, then anger and the solution mm-hmm. being prayer. And um, obviously this Valens person is not necessarily... Um, an enemy of the cross because, you know, he's being going to be restored back, but it may be in the moment he was acting like an enemy of the cross. Um, And I really just like that line, the fruits of your faith will be plain for all to see and you'll be perfected in him. And it made me think of second Corinthians 12, nine and 10, I think, you know, our, his grace is sufficient. Our power is made perfect in uh, his power is made perfect in our weakness. And that is what prayer is doing. It is asking for God's strength to do something that we are unable to do. Maybe that's forgiving. Maybe that, you know, that in this context, that's probably what it's referring to. But it is so transformational for us to pray for them. And, you know, our hearts need transformation when we are angry. Our hearts need to be able to. You know, we need to be able to see things properly when we are angry. We don't see them with clear eyes or see them the way that God does. Um, and, you know, those anybody that would be an enemy of the cross needs prayer. You know, we need, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but it, that's kind of like the idea that, um, you know, what is it? Um, into the spear, who's it? Jim Elliott, I forgot his name for a minute, but the tip of the spear or no, the into end the, of the spear, spear, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but Jim Elliott, you know, thinking, you know, he's going to this people group that is known to be um, violent and cannibalistic, even, and mm. he's going to go there and he's not going to go with a weapon. And it's because, you know, he doesn't need to be killing those who are not ready to meet God. And so, they're not talking about killing anybody in this context, but it's this um, this idea that we need to pray for transformation for people and we want them to experience that transformation. We should want even our enemies to be reconciled to God. We should not want them to face God's judgment in their current state. And I have been guilty of like, God's going to deal with them and he will, you know, that's that's the way that life works and, you know, judgment works, but 
more than anything, I should want them to be reconciled to God. And I should want them to be right with God because the judgment that is to come is not something I want anybody to go through unnecessarily. Yeah, and it's cool that he brings in this this word perfected in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul talks about that in first, or sorry, in Philippians chapter three. Uh, not that I have become perfect, right? Right, um, but I want to know the fellowships of his suffering, mm. right? Um, and it seems like Polycarp is saying that part of this idea of suffering uh, in a in a righteous way is grieving over the sins of people and praying for their repentance. Like that can be a really difficult and hard thing to do for someone who has wounded you, hurt you, hurt others. Uh, it's the flesh is crying out for vengeance. The spirit is crying out for their repentance. And so you also see Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter five in the last the last verse of Matthew chapter five, which I believe is verse 48 saying, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And that word perfect again is this, this idea of telos, which is uh, like a, a pirate telescope being extended to its full measure. So like reaching your end goal, your end goal is to become like Jesus, uh, like your heavenly father. In the context of Matthew five, it's praying for those who persecute you, loving your enemies, giving to those without expect, to people without expecting anything in return. And so one of the ways that we become like God is like Jesus is praying for the repentance of all people, because God desires that no one would perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth, that they yeah. would repent. And to uh, quote the super cliche line, but hurt people hurt oh, people. My <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, it's true though. Like we, yeah. be, we become the thing that we hate the most, right? Oh, that's like true. if we're not yeah. right with God and we're not, you know, we're not constantly examining our heart, like we can become exactly the people that have hurt us. Yeah. So, that's the idea of judgmental. It's it's changing from the stance of like being a court reporter where we're just like saying, hey, this is what God is calling you to do. He's calling you to repent, mm-hmm. you know, to moving to the place of judging the judge. Yeah. Uh, this person doesn't deserve repentance. This person deserves death. This person deserves torture in some cases. This, I mean, that's kind of how things have played out in church history. This person deserves hell and maybe they do, but God wants them to repent. And so when I'm saying, no, that's not a correct desire, I'm actually like judging God. Mm. And that is a terrible position to be in. Yeah, we all want mercy. Yeah, mercy (laughs) triumphs over judgment. Yeah. And so I need to be that merciful person as well. Blessed are those who are merciful for they will receive Mm. mercy. Yeah. Well, let's go on to our last uh, two paragraphs. These will go pretty quick for y'all listening. So... um, Let's do chapter 13 stuff. All right. You and Ignatius both, uh, oh, sorry. You and Ignatius have both written to me to ask whether anyone who may be going to Syria could deliver a letter from there, from you there along with ours. I will see that this one, this is done perhaps by myself personally, if I can find a suitable opportunity or else by someone whom I can send to act for both of us. I am sending you Ignatius's letter as you requested the ones he wrote to us and some others that we had in our possession. They are enclosed herewith. You will be able to derive a great deal of benefit from them, 
for they tell you about faith and perseverance and all the ways of self-improvement that involve our Lord. And if you should have any certain news of Ignatius himself and his companions, pray, let us know. All right, so we got some cool things in here and some kind of confusing things in here. One of the confusing things we'll deal with first is that Ignatius is already dead when Polycarp is writing this letter. He's been dead for a while, which kind of seems weird based on the way this this translator of Polycarp's letter to the Philippians is um, is writing because it almost because so much of it is present tense. The verbs here it it seems to imply that Ignatius is still alive. Yeah, like so it's that's just correspondence, right? So like in the beginning, yeah, that Ignatius and I have both, or sorry, you and Ignatius have both written to me to ask whether anyone may be going to Syria. Uh, mm-hmm. Syria. So it's like there was past tense that uh, Ignatius wrote to Polycarp and uh, the Philippians wrote to Polycarp as well, asking something, if something is going on, you know? So we do have a letter from Ignatius to Polycarp, but that would be around 105 to 107, many, many years. And then Ignatius was killed most likely that very year uh, within like a few months of those letters being written. So that's kind of weird. And then at the end, he says, and if, and if you should have any certain news of Ignatius himself and his companions, Pray, let us know. So that's weird because Polycarp has already talked about Ignatius earlier in the letter when he talked about in chapter nine, uh, you have seen with your own eyes in the blessed Ignatius and Rufus and Zosimus and not only them alone, but he talks about these martyrs and he includes Ignatius there. So Polycarp knows that Ignatius has been martyred Mm -hmm. and his companions. Yeah. He knows they're they're killed. So why is he saying if you have any certain news about them, please let me know. That's a tricky one, and I don't have great answers for it, but one way a person could look at it is do you know any particulars of the way that he died? Or do you know like any last things that happened before his death? Yeah, Polycarp could have had like general news, but not specifics. And so he's asking for specifics. Another way of looking at it perhaps would be like, do we know where their bones are buried? Can we take care of them or something like that? But I think the first is a better uh, a better apologetic in a sense of how to reconcile this, this confusing issue. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, with that though, we have some really cool things about Ignatius himself and, and or sorry, Ignatius's letters. So Polycarp is attesting that there are letters from Ignatius to several churches and to him. And we have like seven, I believe, letters from Ignatius. And there are others as well, but uh, letters to the church at Rome, to the church of Philadelphia, the Tralians, the Magnesians, the Ephesians. We got a letter to Polycarp, like I said. And Polycarp says that you guys need to read these letters. You need to read these letters because they have a great deal of benefit. They tell you all about the faith and perseverance in in the Lord. 
and how to grow in the Lord. So here you have a dis- disciple of John saying, you guys need to read the works of this other disciple of John, Ignatius. These are really important for you guys. I was never told. In fact, I can't remember a single sermon in my entire life where I've heard someone quote Ignatius. All of that to say, if you have a disciple of John saying, guys, you've got to read these letters, maybe it's good for us to do that too. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they're reading Philippians as Mm. if it's a letter. You know, they're not reading it as part of a bound book like the Bible. They're reading it like a letter and this is another letter from a disciple of a disciple. You know, like it's, this is teachings that are direct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Polycarp does make a distinction between the letters of Ignatius and the letters of Paul and Peter um, because they're from the apostles. These are more considered by Polycarp to be scripture. Whereas Ignatius's letters are like, super important, true letters that are uh, building on the foundation of the apostles, basically helping to build us up in the faith, not adding to or taking right, away, just right. kind of explain. Like these are Deeper early explanations for a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. commentaries and ex- explanations uh, showing how to live out the faith once delivered, that kind of idea. Um, last one, okay. Chapter 14, then we'll be done. This goes to you by the hand of Crescens. I commended him to you some time ago, and I repeat the commendation now. His conduct here among us has been above reproach, and I am confident you will find it the same. You shall have a commendation for his sister too when she reaches you. Farewell to you and all your people in the Lord Jesus Christ in grace. All right, so the only thing I wanted to talk about here is this word you see three times. Commendation. Yeah. Okay. This is a literal thing. This is something that you see the early church doing, giving a letter of con- commendation. It sounds like when people would join the Baptist church, they come by let- transfer of letter. I don't know if that's all denominations, but that's what we grew up as. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's not really happening now. And- those letters of commendation often became uh, less personalized and more just generic over time, you know? Mm. Whereas you often see with these these letters of commendation, a description of what these people have done. Uh, You see Paul do it in Philippians chapter three. Um, I think it's with Epaphroditus. He's telling like, specific things that this person has done and to welcome him in the name of the Lord, that kind of an idea. And uh, Polycarp does it here with Kreskins and his sister, but it's oftentimes an additional like little document with this general letter. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's kind of becoming less common. I have seen plenty of people join various churches that we've been a part of. And I don't remember ever hearing that term after my childhood. But it it seems like, you know, anybody can join a church. You obviously, if you left your bad church on, or you left your church on bad terms, then you don't have to have a letter of commendation. But it 
adds some validity to the person. If you're coming directly from a church with good, um, a good recommendation that's personalized and they tell, you know, oh, you served as an elder there and you were in good standing and the only reason you're not a part of that church is because maybe you moved to the other side of town or something, it, it seems like that would be a person who is less likely to end up in a bad situation or put the church in a bad situation. So maybe you can trust them a little more quickly than this person who's coming without some sort of letter of commendation. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's right on point. So we've come to the end of our series on Polycarp. Next, we're going to go into 1 Thessalonians. And then after 1 Thessalonians, we'll get back into a early Christian document. And I thought it might be cool, since Polycarp told us to read some Ignatius, that we go to one of those letters. Sounds good. All right. Glorious one.